Well, good morning. In case you didn't hear, Ephraim read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. So as you open or load your Bible, uh, man, let me begin by introducing myself. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McCallum. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, A couple of things for you. If you are new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to take you out to dinner. We'd love to take you out to lunch. And so, man, Fill out the Connect card that is on the chairs, uh, drop it in the Connect desk, and we'll set something up so that we can hang out. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, let us hook you up. That is our gift to you. We love God's Word. We love preaching from God's Word, and so, and so let us hook you up. Those are also located in the Connect desk. However, if you know someone that would benefit from having God's Word in their hands, then you should totally take a couple of copies and hook them up up. The last thing I have is an update uh, slash announcement. You might even hear about this on the announcement video. Uh, October 31st, we're going to be having a volunteer appreciation lunch. And let me just begin by saying, those of you who serve on Sunday mornings, you're awesome. We are incredibly grateful and thankful for you. You give your time, you give your talent to to make everything happen. And so we are incredibly grateful for you. We are so thankful for you. And I love your service and heart for our church. And so October 31st, if you didn't know, that's Halloween. If you're a nerd, that's Reformation Day. Uh, When it comes to that, right after service, we're going to have lunch for you. Uh, Here's what you need to do on your end. Uh, Make sure you talk to your ministry leader. They have a link so that you can register for the lunch, uh, so that you and your family can attend, if you're bringing your kiddos, so that we know how many people are coming, so that we have an adequate amount of food. So please, please get with your ministry leader. They'll hook you up with the link so that you can register. And so that's October 31st, and I think those are all the updates that I have for you. Uh, With all that being said, we have a large, large portion of Scripture to tackle this morning, so I just want to get into it, and I want to get into it by, by asking you a question. Here it is. Are you ready? Have you ever been in a situation where you have felt dumb? All right, yeah. Have you ever been in a scenario or in a season where you had become so sure about something only to realize that you were absolutely, positively wrong? And then what happens afterwards? It's the embarrassing rush of a feeling of stupidity that hits. And you tend to think, how could I have been this dumb? It happens. Sometimes it happens with a genuine mistake, sometimes not so much of a mistake. For instance, yesterday morning, my son competed in the area marching competition, which hosted a little bit under 30 marching bands in the valley, and I think going up all the way to to Corpus, um, and they did it in Weslico. And all week, I had been planning what my Saturday would look like. I calendared it. I told my wife about the time that he was going to be taking the field, which was 11.15. I had told some of the guys in our MC about it. Uh, Saturday morning, I was recording a podcast with a friend, and he asked, oh, what does your Saturday look like? And I said, oh, Seth is competing at area. He takes the field at 11.15, 11.15, 11.15. I'm telling everybody that it's 11.15. 
And so in the midst of all of this, yesterday morning, Rebecca comes into my office as we're recording this, this last podcast, and she says, hey, I'm headed over to Westlaco with my mom. This was around 9.30. And I tend to think, like, why are you leaving so early? And she says, well, I want to support Seth. And you had mentioned that it started at 10. And I said, why would I say that it starts at 10 if he takes the field at 11.15? Maybe she just wanted to get there a little bit early, see a couple of other bands, enjoy the show. And so as she leaves and she's headed to Wesleyville with her mom, I'm beginning to think, why would I say 10? Was I just trying to block off a time? Maybe that's what it was. It didn't sit well with me. So I go to check like the band booster page. And on the band booster page, what does it say? 11, or 10.15. He takes the field at 10.15. So I text Rebecca and I said, when you're going to get there, he's going to be taking the field. And that really stunk, right? Because I felt incredibly dumb. Like the whole week I built up to 1115. I know I was in marching band. I know how this works. 1115 is when it's going to happen. She makes it just in the nick of time. I unfortunately miss his performance. And afterward, I felt just incredibly dumb. Just walking throughout the whole week so sure that this was the correct time. That's the kind of feeling I'm talking about when it comes to the I should have known better type of feeling. Well, as we turn to Galatians 3 this morning, I'm not so sure if the Galatians felt that way on their own. So by grace and love, the Apostle Paul helps them to realize their own foolishness by calling out, and this is kind of a strong word, but we'll talk about it in a moment, by calling out their own stupidity with the aim of walking them toward wisdom. That's something key. We're going to talk about that little phrase in just a moment. But if you haven't been here, let me catch you up briefly on Galatians. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to a network of churches in the province of Galatia. And these churches had been planted and established by the Apostle Paul. And these churches were young, thriving, growing churches. Yet not too long after them being planted, there were these individuals called these Judaizers, these false teachers who began to persuade the Galatians with a false gospel, saying that the message that Paul was preaching was only half true. In other words, what Paul or what they were saying was, it's true what Paul says, you can come to know Jesus by faith, but there's something more to that. Ultimately, they were preaching that in order to be truly holy, in order to truly know God, it was through faith in Jesus and works of the law. They were referring to the Mosaic Covenant of the Old Testament, Old Testament and specifically the rite of circumcision. And what they were saying is, then and only then can one actually know God. And what we know about these churches in Galatia is that they began to consider to embrace the Mosaic Law as a means of salvific faith. And when Paul hears about this, he becomes furious and passionate toward the Galatians. And as he writes to them, as we observed, chapters 1 and 2, Paul begins to build a case for this doctrine that we looked at last week called the doctrine of justification. In the opening chapter of Galatians, Paul begins to defend the gospel. We said it this way, Paul started in the gospel and then stays in the gospel throughout his entire letter to the Galatians. 
He begins to provide personal examples of his own conversion experience and examples with other individuals who were not of Jewish background like Titus and how he came to faith in Jesus. Later on, he begins to give us an example of some confrontation that he had with the Apostle Peter. And in essence, what Paul is doing in both of these chapters is building up to justification. That is, the way in which someone is declared just. This is a legal term. The way in which someone is declared just, or we could say it this way, the way in which a person is declared right before God is on the basis of faith alone and not merit. In other words, it is on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners that provides a way by which a sinner's status can be changed to saint. The beauty of this doctrine, and we're going to talk about it for the rest of our time in Galatians, but the beauty of this doctrine is that when we turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, we are declared, we are made righteous before God. That tends to be a very popular conversation when I meet with uh, individuals from our congregation or the community. What is it going to look like for me to be right with God? I need to be right with God. I need to do something to be right with God. The doctrine of justification teaches us that in order for us to be declared as righteous, it is by faith in Jesus alone. And as a result of that, the Father is now pleased with us because of Jesus' work for us. The fruit of justification is that our sins have been absolutely forgiven. Our status from sinner to saint has been changed. Our works now, what we do, are a response to the gift of faith that we have been given. And so in chapters 3, as we'll examine today, and even into 4, Paul will begin to defend this doctrine to the Galatians. And so as we move into the opening chapter or the opening verses of chapter 3, here's the main idea for our time. Here's what I think you and I need to embrace for our time today and moving on. The way in which you came to know Jesus is the same way by which you are sanctified in Jesus, and that is through faith. It is by faith that you came to know Jesus, and it is by faith that you are sanctified in Jesus. That's the essence of Paul's argument in these 14 verses. So let me pray, and then we'll We'll begin with verse 1. <clears throat> God, as we approach you with confidence, as we approach you with humility, I'm reminded of what the psalmist prays, and that is for your word to be sweeter than the taste of honey. This morning, may we incline our hearts toward you. May you fill us with more of Jesus through your Spirit. And may you reveal Jesus to those who do not know him. Simply, we ask this in his precious name. Amen. 
All right, here we go. So throughout the course of this letter, we've read about hints of Paul's passion and Paul's anger, even on such occasions as his confrontation with the Apostle Peter. We looked at that about two weeks ago. And to be clear, as you begin to see some of these hints of anger and passion, Paul was very justified in his anger. And here's why. He was justified because he wasn't merely taking the news of what the Galatians were considering personally. It was because there was a threat to the very nature of the gospel. And if you forgot or if you don't know what it was that the Galatians were doing, let's very quickly go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 6. Paul writes to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The word different implies that this gospel that they are turning to has a completely different nature than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul is angry and so passionate toward the Galatians. Paul took the gospel incredibly seriously. And so in our time, we're going to look at three areas of Paul's argument toward the Galatians. The first one is discernment. This is verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to look at doctrine. That's verses 6 through 9. And then finally, we're going to look at defense, verses 10 through 14. Well, in this first section, that is discernment, as Paul's attention is now fully on the Galatians. In chapter 1, it was on him. In chapter 2, it was Titus and the council in Jerusalem. And then and it was on Peter. Now, as we walk into chapter 3, his attention is fully on the Galatians. He's not talking about anyone else. He's talking directly to the Galatians now. And so as his attention is fully on the Galatians, Paul doesn't hold back. In this portion of Scripture, Paul strongly calls the Galatians out on their lack of discernment. And Paul's going to raise several rhetorical questions so that they would see the nature of their temptation and ultimately their decisions. And as we work our way into verse 1, I want you to notice something as we work through the entirety of this scripture. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't call the Galatians out just to call them out. Paul addresses what their issue is. We're going to see that in this first section. Paul addresses what the issue is, and that is a lack of discernment. But check this. Paul's goal is to walk them toward wisdom. Now let's park right there because we're not even in verse 1 yet. Here's the, the opening question. Do you do the same? I want you to chew on that for a little bit. Do you do the same? That when it comes to calling someone out, do you address their sin, or let's just use that language, do you call them out with the intention of then walking them toward wisdom? Or do you call them out and then leave them there? Showcasing your self-righteousness. 
You see, my concern is that as we begin this section of scripture, many of you are going to be really excited to hear Paul's attitude, right? When he says, you foolish Galatians, we're going to think about the veracity of Paul in here. But we must also remember that as we work our way into chapter four, for instance, Paul calls the Galatians his own children. Paul loves the Galatians. Paul has a heart for the Galatians. Paul wants them to be filled more and more with Jesus. He wants them to become more and more like Jesus. And so when Paul calls them out, it's with the intention of walking them toward wisdom. He is not simply calling them out because that's just what you do, and he drops truth bombs. Do you do the same? Do you drop these truth bombs, these words of truth, whatever it is you want to say, insert your own Christianese just to leave your brother or sister there rather than walking them toward wisdom? I fear that that might be the temptation for many, but I want you to think about that. Just because Paul calls them out, it does not neglect his genuine love for the Galatians. So let's look at verse 1. With that being said, with that little preface being said, let's look at verse 1. And it's really just the first uh, three words of verse 1. And it begins by Paul saying, Oh, foolish Galatians. The word foolish is a very, very strong word. Paul uses it twice in this section. He says it once more in verse 3. Are you so foolish? The translation of the word is something similar to the extent of idiot or moron. That's what he is saying. Could you imagine that counseling session? Could you imagine that like discipleship over coffee? Hey man, Paul, so this is what's going on. You idiot! Could you imagine? Man, maybe Paul was a great theologian. Man, he said some really wonderful things. Maybe he wasn't that great of a counselor. I don't know. I wasn't there right? I know I am not a great counselor because oftentimes, like, as situations get brought to me, oftentimes I'm like, yeah, no, okay, let's talk about that. And then at some point I'm like, this is dumb. And that's probably not the best way to handle many of those sessions. But just think about that for a moment. You're a leader in one of the churches in Galatia and you read, you idiot. Paul is using really, really strong and specific language. But here's what I want you to note as he uses this, as he's calling out their foolishness. And he does it twice. Here's what I want you to note. Paul isn't questioning their intelligence. I'm literally letting that sit for a little bit. He's calling them out just like you and I call one another out, but he's not questioning their intelligence. Rather, Paul is questioning their lack of discernment. It is their lack of discernment that has led them to be in a place of theological inconsistency. That's what Paul is ultimately addressing here. Two weeks ago, we discussed how uh, contagious hypocrisy can be. Well, in that same vein, a lack of discernment can lead to destruction. 
A lack of discernment is when you intentionally do not apply wisdom, either because you really want to do something that maybe you shouldn't, or you should do something that you don't want to, or because you actually are unable to make a distinction between, in this case, godly and ungodly. So let me ask you, church, do you lack discernment? Do you lack discernment? Are you incapable or unwilling to apply the wisdom of Scripture to your circumstances? And if so, why? Is it because you really want whatever it is you're involved in or whoever you're involved with? Are you incapable of applying wisdom because you simply don't know the Word of God for yourself? And as a result, you are captivated by any wind of doctrine that sounds even remotely Christian. I mentioned that I was uh, doing this podcast episode with a friend and it was our last episode for the season and we were reviewing this book. If you want to know which book it is, ask me afterward. Anyway, we're reviewing this one book that's a Christian bestseller. You go to Barnes and Noble and it's going to be under the Christian living section. It, it, man, people have gone to it. Christians have gone to it, have flocked to this book. It has benefited some. It has impacted many, many more. And there are some issues that we had with the book. In short, and I'll come back to this example, in short, what the book ended up doing toward the end specifically was that the author would take passages of Scripture out of context in order to fit their narrative for whatever it is that they wanted to address. In other words, they were bending the truth of Scripture to fit their agenda. Rather than approaching Scripture for illumination, they were approaching it for manipulation. Now, here's the thing. It's a Christian bestseller. Christians are buying it off the shelves. What's so concerning about that, or what could be concerning, let me say it that way, what could be concerning about something like that is that Christians lack discernment. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have some garbage on your bookshelves. You should. You need to know what's being like written out there, and you need to be able to defend what you believe. You need to know what's going on. But on top of that, there's something completely different when you receive something like this, and just because it has some Christianese sprinkled in it and a verse uh, attached to it doesn't make it accurate. Doesn't make it true. And Christians are flocking to material such as this. And so some might say, how could the author write something like that? I would say, how could the Christian lack so much discernment? As a result of that, as a result of an example like that, Paul will now provide five rhetorical questions to the Galatians. You don't have to write these down because they're right in the scriptures. But he's going to provide five rhetorical questions to the Galatians. And here's what I'm hoping. I hope that the Spirit of God would press us with these same questions this morning. So I'm going to read the questions just so that we're all on the same page, and then I'll go back and we'll, we'll address each one. Here we go. Here's the first question. It's in that first verse. Paul writes, who has bewitched you? That's number one. 
The second question, Paul writes, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The third question is, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Number four, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And finally, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's tackle the first one. Who has bewitched you? That word bewitched, Paul is using language of magic or sorcery, right? And he uses, he uses creative language in this entire section of the scripture, which I think is wonderful. And the reason he uses a word like bewitched is because what they have begun to consider, that is the Galatians, as they are turning from Christ, what they have begun to consider is ungodly, unbiblical, and not of Jesus. So Paul is saying, you must be in some sort of a spell. Something must have happened for you to be bewitched. In short, what Paul is getting at in this first question is that the false gospel that they are being captivated by uh, has their attention, and he knows this because their eyes are off of Jesus. And so then that raises the question, well, how does Paul know that their eyes are off of Jesus? Let's continue with verse one. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What Paul is saying in that little section of scripture, he is saying that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he preached to the Galatians was as clear as day and as bright as the sun. It was as if the Galatians themselves were witnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus. He says the message of the gospel was preached so big to you and so clear. That little phrase, publicly portrayed, is language of advertisement. He's saying it was a billboard. You could not miss this message. So what happened? Who has captivated you? This message was loud. It was clear. It was bright. I saw you come to know Jesus. And now you're captivated by something else. And so he leads into, and it's like a machine gun in terms of questions. So he leads into the next question. Did you receive the spirits by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, here in all of these questions, Paul appeals to the Galatians' conversion experience because he's come to realize they're all about experience. They want to talk about experience. They want the experience. Many of you want the experience. And so Paul is ultimately appealing to their experience because they're captivated by experience, just like many of us are captivated by experience. And so when Paul asks the second question, he's ultimately asking, how did you come to know Jesus? Was it through the works of your own personal righteousness? Or was it by hearing with faith? Which one was it? You see, experiences aren't bad. But the point of what Paul is trying to make here, the point of his question is whether or not the Galatians are simply looking for a spiritual and experiential fix. That's what he's getting at. They're just looking for the next experience to make them feel more spiritual. They're just looking for the next thing that's going to make them feel a lot more Christian. And Paul is saying, did you come to know Jesus by faith? Or did you come to know Jesus by some other way? 
which leads into the third question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, in essence, it's a continuation of the previous question. That is, if they came to know Jesus by faith, are they now being sanctified by their own self-righteousness? Or is it still by faith? Guys, the, the same way in which we come to know Jesus is the same way by which we are sanctified in Jesus. And that is through faith. See, we're not saved by faith in Jesus and then left to fend for ourselves or to figure it out for ourselves. We're not even sanctified by our own self-righteousness, but by our response to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. See, the idea here is that in our flesh, we would actually be more like Jesus and less like our old self. That we would put more deeds of our body to death so that we would walk in Jesus. The next question he says, or he asks, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? The word suffer in this question and in this context doesn't means suffering in a negative sense, as if he's talking about persecution. The word suffer in this question is another word for experience. And so Paul, looking at their conversion, is ultimately asking, did you experience so many things in vain? In other words, was your conversion a joke? Was your conversion a sham? Because if it is, you might as well not have even had those experiences. That's what he's putting on the table. And he concludes with, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing? He who supplies, he's saying, that is God. Does God who supplies the Spirit to you work miracles among you? The miracles that Paul is talking about is that ongoing daily work of the Spirit. We would call that sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing work of salvation through the Holy Spirit in us. It is us becoming more like Jesus as we respond to the work of the Spirit in us. Paul said something similar to the Colossians when we looked at it in the spring. In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The same way that you come to know Jesus is the same way by which you are sanctified in Jesus, and that is through faith. Church, are you bewitched? Has someone or something, whether it's a doctrine or a person or a dream, has it bewitched you that you have lost focus on Jesus? Remember, we can visit the bookstore and check out the Christian book section. We could turn the TV on to the Christian channel. We can even listen to Christian music and be captivated by something that is not of Jesus. Let me ask it from a different angle. Are you captivated by your own self-righteousness? 
Sometimes I'll ask the question, and some of you know, I'll ask the question, how's your relationship with Jesus? And one of the common answers that I receive is, I pray, I go to church. So you give me the resume, but you don't tell me anything about the relationship. Are you captivated more by your own self-righteousness? See, the church is in dire need of discernment at every stage of her life, including right now. Present tense, right now. Discernment is first finding yourself nourished through the Word of God and the truth of God, and then applying it to the variety of circumstances that you find yourself in so that you may be able to make good decisions, wise decisions, but also make distinctions between what is good and bad or good and evil, ungodly, godly, spiritual and gospel-centered. That's the point of discernment, so that we would make distinctions. A lack of discernment, and we could all say, well, we need to grow in discernment, and I would agree. We need to grow in discernment. And a lack of discernment is subtle. And some of you may think, well, it's not that big of a deal. The problem is, it could be so subtle that eventually, the fruit of a lack of discernment is devastation and destruction. This is what the Galatians were experiencing. Let's look to doctrine. This is verse 6 through 9. So we've looked at experience, and we've looked at our discernment through those experiences. Paul now turns toward doctrine, and here's what's going on. The Judaizers were telling the Galatians that Paul was not only wrong in his message of the gospel— but that his theology was off, arguing that if the Galatians were to go back to the Old Testament and begin with Abraham, they would see that he was granted faith through circumcision. And so Paul leads us into this next argument in verse 6. And I'll actually read, uh, let me read verse 5 into 6, because it seems to make a little bit more sense. Paul writes, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, that little comment, that little verse would have really upset the Judaizers. And when it comes to the Galatians, now all sorts of question marks are coming up. Why would you bring up Abraham? The Judaizers have been saying that all of this started with Abraham. And ultimately, verses 6 through 9, is Paul saying, if you want to talk about doctrine, then let's talk about doctrine. If we're going to talk about salvation by grace through faith, then we need to do it all the way. And so Paul says, let's. Let's talk about Abraham. So we need to identify who Abraham is. All right? In order to understand the context of verses 6 through 9, we need to go to Abraham first. He is known as the father of God's people. Right, you can read about him back in Galatians or Genesis. Now here's what's nuts. All right, here's what's nuts about good old father Abraham. All right? Abraham was a pagan. Let that sit, especially if you have a little bit of knowledge of the Old Testament. Abraham was a pagan. In this section, verses uh, 7 through 9 now, uh, beginning, where are we? Beginning in verse, at the end of verse 8, Paul goes on to say, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So God promises Abraham that he'd be given offspring that would follow in his footsteps, believing as Abraham did, that is, by faith, right? Abraham is known as the father of God's people, but was not of biological ancestry. That's what's wild. Paul is primarily talking to Gentiles who don't have a Jewish background. And so this is wild for them. And so in this section, Paul is quoting Genesis 15.6. And Genesis 15.6 is a really important text of the Old Testament. Here's what, he, here's what God says. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham came to know God through faith. The Judaizers are saying, yes, he came to know God through faith because of circumcision. That's how it works. Paul is saying, cool, you want to talk about Abraham? Let's talk about Abraham. What you are referencing, that is circumcision, that is in Genesis 17. And so Paul is saying, you're not wrong. Or he's telling the Galatians, they're not wrong. They're absolutely right. Abraham gets circumcised. Yes, it's in Genesis 17. However, that's not the issue. The issue is salvation by faith. That's why he quotes Genesis 15. Because Abraham came to know God through faith almost a decade before circumcision was even brought on the scene. Here's why that's wild. Homeboy was a pagan. And he is known as the father of God's people. Here's why that's wild. The Old Testament doesn't have one way of salvation, and the New Testament has a new way of salvation. It is one message of salvation by faith alone. It is one message. Abraham belonged to God and was credited as righteous because of faith. That's it. So as the Judaizers tried drawing the Galatians to Genesis 17, Paul's like, cool, but we've got to look at the rest of the story. And so Paul continues in verse 7. Know then that this, excuse me, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith, I think, this is like extra biblical commentary. I think it's a little jab from Paul to the Judaizers or whoever's reading this. Because in Galatians, at one point, the Judaizers are known as the circumcision party. And so this little phrase, those of faith, its translation can be read as the faith party. <laughs> so it's this like little jab. Paul's like, yeah, those are of the circumcision. We are of, of uh, faith. That's our crew. We belong to the faith party. Why would he say that? Because those who know Jesus by faith bear the family likeness to Abraham in the shape of saving faith. So Paul continues. Verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. When he says scripture foreseeing, Paul is using this phrase with some creative language as to say, God, as written in scripture, said. 
And what was it that God said? It was the good news of salvation was to be extended to all peoples, including Gentiles, who would be declared righteous by God, just like Abraham, on the basis of faith. One commentator says it this way, Abraham not only received the promise of the gospel, but also anticipated its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. A fulfillment that was being realized in part among the Gentiles themselves, who had been justified by faith through their hearing of the gospel by the ministry of Paul. Abraham comes to know God through faith. He is anticipating the fulfillment of this promise in Christ. And as the Galatians are coming to know Jesus, Paul is saying that promise that God made to Abraham has been fulfilled in Jesus and you're experiencing the effects of that promise. That same type of message is being preached to you. You have been affected by that promise that God made to Abraham. You know Jesus through faith. Paul was ultimately teaching and proving to the Galatians that since the beginning, there is only one way of salvation by grace through faith. There is not one way in the Old Testament and one way in the New Testament. Now, here's why verses 6 through 9 matters. Not only because it's crazy about Abraham, not only because that same promise is still being affected and fulfilled in you today, but because doctrine matters. Knowing what God's Word says matters. Once more, what the Judaizers were doing with the Galatians was they were taking a portion of Scripture and they were building it to fit their narrative. Rather than illumination, it was for the use of manipulation. And so this entire argument of doctrine in verses 6 through 9 is Paul saying, hey, what they're saying isn't wrong, but that's not everything. Let's look at all of Scripture. And you need to know that. Not just when you go to the Christian bookstore, not just when you turn on the Christian TV station, not just when you are even in the midst of having some Christian-type culture, whatever that looks like, you need to know your Bible And you need to know where something is coming from and what it says. One of the things I've mentioned in the past is just like a realtor will suggest location, location, location. Scripture will teach us in terms of interpretation, context, context, context. And so what the Judaizers were doing was taking uh, Scripture out of context to fit their narrative. And that's exactly what sways Christians. Because this one verse is tagged on to this one line, and so that must be true. Currently, we're doing, a, we're doing a teaching lab once a month with a couple of participants. And what's been really cool is I'll give them a piece of Scripture, and I will ask them to teach it incorrectly. And what's so fascinating about that is that you can get to several different avenues really quick. When you don't look at context and when you don't really care, (laughs) right? Like you can actually take so much out and construct something that has absolutely nothing to do with the text. Last week we did it with, what was it? It was 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9. It was the chapter on giving. 
And I was like, hey, tell me, give me a three-point outline. And they did, and it was great. And they're all horrible, because they were like, it was the incorrect way. But the point of the exercise was to show, hey, we can actually build stuff really, really easily. Additionally, at one point we looked at, what was it? It was Joshua 8. And in Joshua 8 is when an individual is hung on a tree. He's crucified. There's a king who is crucified. And there's even like the setting of Joshua 8 that a stone eventually rolled away. And so the question to them was, hey, in this, take me to Jesus really quick. And so everybody was like, all right, let's do this. And it was really easy because of the imagery. Well, there's a king who is being crucified. Well, that's like Jesus. There's a stone that even rolled away. That happened during the resurrection. Clearly, this passage is about Jesus being crucified. The passage was about a king, uh, in this case, murdering a pagan. (laughs) Had nothing to do with Jesus. But you focus on some of that imagery like, but the stone. Yeah, it was a stone. Doctrine matters. You can get away from Jesus very, very quickly. You can live in a way where you are certain of your confession, but your conduct is completely off base. All because of your doctrine. Doctrine matters because doctrine shapes our devotion. It shapes how we live. So let's look at the final section, defense. This is verses 10 through 14. And this part of Paul's argument, almost, he's, he's beginning to wrap it up. And he goes all out. Paul quotes Leviticus, he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes Habakkuk to prove one final point in this section. And here's here's what he's getting at in verses 10 to 14. Any attempt to be justified, to be right before God, any attempt to be justified by the law leads to a curse. In other words, what Paul is going to get at is There is no one other than Jesus who has ever kept or who could ever even fulfill the law. James says something similar in chapter 2. He writes, For whoever keeps the whole law, that might be someone like, No, man, I'm all about the law. I've got to follow the law. James is like, Cool. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. A couple of weeks ago, I told you very, very briefly that the law would do two things. It would expose the condition, the true condition of our heart, and that the law would also hopefully reveal our need for a Savior, our need to be saved. And so Paul opens with verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and he starts with Leviticus, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and and do them. Paul is saying, if you're going to rely on works of the law, if you're going to rely 
on your own self-righteousness, if you're going to rely on your own merit, then you need to know one thing. You're under a curse. Now that sounds so spiritual. That sounds so like, you know, majestic, like a curse. What, is, what does that mean? It makes me think of like Pirates of the Caribbean. Nothing like that, right? Like what he's talking about is like, hey, the curse that you're under, it's called sin. You are in bondage to sin. You are imprisoned to sin. And so as he continues, verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So now he quotes Habakkuk. When Paul writes that the law is not of faith, what he means is the law is not a means of obtaining favor from God by merit. In other words, what Paul is getting at is you're not going to be counted as righteous through works of the law. And the more you try to do it, the more you're going to fail. And if anything is to be revealed, it's that you are under a curse. Like, I mean, could you consider even that pressure for an individual to say, man, I got to keep, I got to keep the law. We've jacked it up from day one. And then James says, if we jack it up even once, we've ruined the whole thing. And to be fair, Paul isn't knocking works of the law. The problem was that the Galatians were trying to rely on the works of the law on the basis of their salvation rather than a response. And so when Paul is saying, hey, you're under a curse, that means you're in bondage to sin. You can keep trying to do all of the things and you're going to keep falling. And so it almost leads us to this place of hopelessness. Because we talked a little bit about this last week. Some of you are spiritually exhausted. I keep doing, 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 and I don't see necessarily a change. Where is God? Is he really in this? What's going to happen? I keep doing, I keep doing, I keep doing, therefore I deserve, therefore I am entitled. How could no one notice X, Y, and Z? And so you find yourself spiritually exhausted and at times even hopeless. Here's the irony. Paul is saying that's the point of the law. You actually won't be able to keep it. You cannot keep it because you're going to continue to fall short in it. And so it leaves us with a question like, then what must happen? And Paul's argument moves rather quickly in this section, right? He's illustrated the doctrine of justification through their experience. He's given them a theology lesson on Abraham. And now here he's wrapping it up, ultimately pointing to this question. If we are under a curse apart from faith, then how could we ever be made right with God? Would there ever be a way for us to be made right with God? And Paul eloquently answers that for us in verse 13. Let's read that slowly. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So he's quoting Deuteronomy. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
as a result of the curse that we found ourselves in, as a result of our disobedience, our corruption, our sinful nature, Christ became a curse for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was crucified bearing all of our sin. Listen real quick. Stop writing notes. All of our sin willingly enduring our death in our place. Jesus' death on the cross was not only so that we might be reconciled to God, but so that God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. So that the Gentiles, so that people in McAllen, so that those of us in Storehouse McAllen may come to know God through faith in Jesus. The curse of sin has been lifted by Christ's work on the cross. His substitutionary work for sinners has provided a means of coming to know Jesus, being reconciled to God the Father, and being indwelt with the presence of the Holy Spirit by grace through faith. Praise be to God for Jesus. Your works, church, your works should be a response to the gift of faith that you have been given. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Start there. If you want to start anywhere, start there. This standing in light of what Jesus has done, his substitutionary work, this standing is not only theologically crucial, but practically vital for us. We must defend the true gospel. We must stand firm on the beauty that we are justified, not by our works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. The way by which we came to know Jesus is the same way by which we are sanctified in Jesus. And that is through faith. Therefore, as a result of Jesus' work for you, I want you to be encouraged by two things. The first one is this. His work on the cross for you, Christian, is a reminder that Jesus is devoted to you even when you're not fully devoted to him. I'll let that sit for a little bit. Make it awkward. Jesus' work on the cross for you is a reminder that he is devoted to you even when you're not devoted to him. The second thing I want you to be encouraged by is that that is a grace that you must sit in and received this morning. We talked about that last week, how it's kind of hard for some of us to receive that grace. Well, we're going to do that right now. That is a grace for you to receive. That is a grace for you to embrace. And my hope is that you would embrace it this morning so that you would walk in light of that grace as you head out of here. So as we wrap it up, Christian, if 
you belong to Jesus, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, who has bewitched you? What captivates you away from Jesus? Who captivates you away from Jesus? Is it your own self-righteousness? Jesus has lifted the curse of sin through his life, death, and resurrection. Turn toward him this morning, church. Be captivated by Jesus' devotion to you. By the confession of Jesus is Lord. Surrender before Jesus and walk in the grace that you have received. And if you're not a Christian, love that you're here. It's an honor. Not even kidding. It's an honor that you're here. And I got to tell you, you're under a curse. You're in bondage to your sin. And you cannot save yourself. You would say, well, how? Let me ask you, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? See, the message of the gospel is that Jesus invites you to come and know him. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. In Jesus, guilt is removed. In Jesus, there is new life. And it is a life that nourishes you by faith. So you can come and know Jesus by faith and repentance today. Church, the way by which we come to know Jesus, or let me say it this way, By faith we come to know Jesus, and it is by faith that we are sanctified in Jesus. Let's pray. God, in your presence, we confess confess our, our, our sinfulness. God, we confess our our shortcomings and our offenses against you, even our shortcomings and offenses against one another. In your presence, God, we cast our burdens. We cast our burdens on you, the burdens that our bones have grown so weary of. We cast them out before you. God, you alone know how often and how easy we wander from your ways, where we forget your grace and where we forget your love for us in Jesus. Therefore, God, we confess that we are easily captivated by something else, even when it sounds godly or spiritual. Father, may we stand in awe of your grace for us in Jesus this morning. May our hearts be captivated by the beauty and splendor of Jesus for us. May our life be marked by the fruit of our justification in Jesus. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.